Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms now wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. It is Friday. Oh, Friday. Friday. Oh. Um, I don't know about you, this week kind of flew by, um, and I have a lot on my expectation calendar for the next couple of days, and, you know, get this is the weekend during which, you know, I can get ready for everything that's going to happen during Thanksgiving and over Thanksgiving weekend, so this is like the weekend of preparation for the weekend that will be. That's kind of what I'm thinking. As we're Talking about preparation, let me ask how you're going to be preparing yourself for the Advent, the celebration of the Advent of Christ, the celebration of uh, the first coming of Jesus in human flesh. So Advent is a season of preparation. We're going to enter into it in about a week. And so it's time now to go to MyFaithRadio.com and sign up to join us in reading through the Bible together this Advent. We've got all kinds of wonderful things planned. And Um, And actually, some resources already posted in relationship to it. So go ahead and sign up today to join us in reading through the Bible together during Advent. We're obviously not reading the whole Bible. We're reading Advent-specific passages and reflecting on them together. So I invite you into that. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Galatians 2.20. I'm going to read it it as it appears in the verse of the day that we send out from Faith Radio, you can sign up for that as well. All of this is free at MyFaithRadio.com. It's free because listeners like you so graciously support this ministry financially. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you're one of the people who are making this happen through your financial gifts right now. Galatians 2.20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body, yes, but trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if you have read my book, Speak the Truth, um, then you know that I consider Galatians 2.20 my life verse. I am a Galatians 2.20 person. It's what makes me so weird in the wonderfully weird, I think, in the world today. Uh, My life is not my own. I mean, when I came to the recognition um, when I was 16 years old that um, God had done for me what I could never do and was offering to me something I could never myself um, achieve or even hope, and that was to have peace and to be reconciled to him. Um, You know, I I gave him all of myself that I understood, um, you know, and and have continued each and every day since that point um, to say to God, all right, it's not, this life's not my own. It's not mine anymore. You not only gave it to me, you bought it back. Um, it's yours. Do with it as you will. Animate this, this flesh suit. Animate, animate this life. My life is not my own. I mean, yeah, I continue to live in an earthly body, but I do so as a vessel, a conduit, uh, an agent of the one who came full of grace and truth, an ambassador of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It is no longer I who live, my friends, but Christ who lives in and through me. 
and you either like him or you don't. I mean, I, I, I will tell you that is how you live in the world, not concerned with uh, what others think, because what others think of you, if you're living a life animated by Christ, is ultimately what they think of him. Um, and so if people are disgusted by Jesus, uh, <laughs> they're going to be disgusted by me. That's sort of how it works. But I'm all in. I am all in. He has my heart, my mind, my life. He has my relationships. He has my vocational energy. He has my all in all. And yeah, there are times that the old self rears up and seeks to assert itself and have its own way. Oh yeah, daily, daily I have cause to repent. Moment by moment throughout the day, I have to consciously yield to the Holy Spirit and cooperate again in some new un- unconquered proclivity of the sinful self that you know rears up. But I'm his. I'm his. There is no part of my life that is not God's to use according to his will. That's what Galatians 2.20 means. So what about you? Do you consider your life your own? Are you still seeking to be the Lord of your own life? I mean, how's that going for you? Christianity is a totalizing system. It's an identity, a way of life, a mindset, a cosmology, a promise, a substantiated hope, a Um, an eternal home that you can live in right here and right now, and yes, for all eternity to come. So if you have never invited Christ to animate your life and you're ready to do that, let today be the day you become a Galatians 2.20 person, that your life would no longer be your own, that you would recognize that you are crucified with Christ, and it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Let me tell you, it changes everything, and it is a life that is good. As you and I look around the culture today, I'm wondering if you ever ask, like I do, what is wrong with us? Bonnie Christian's going to join us next. She's going to press, uh, press into the question of, of, of untrustworthy, the knowledge crisis that's breaking our brains, polluting our politics, and corrupting Christian community. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. It's not my strength, but he There's no greater sacrifice I trust in you, trust in you When it's hard to say I trust in you, trust in you I'm really excited about introducing you to Bonnie Christian. Uh, she is the author most recently of Untrustworthy. The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. Bonnie, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I um, Here's the range of things I want to talk with you about today. I want to talk about an extended quote from Dorothy Sayers that you, uh, that you teed up recently in a conversation with some of our friends, Daniel Bennett and Jeff Bilbro. I want to talk with you, obviously, you know, directly about the book, um, maybe we start with, like, w- what is the conversation that we must be having that's the, it's kind of the behind every conversation that we're having in public? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I think that the, the concept of the book is that we are experiencing what the subtitle calls a knowledge crisis, that, mm-hmm. that there's this sense of confusion and uncertainty that I think a lot of us feel when we're engaging with uh, especially political media, not exclusively, but but frequently political media, and especially uh, you know online social media. Again, not exclusively, um, but I think for a lot of us, that's where we experience it, and it's uh, it's the result of just a very chaotic and overwhelming information environment in which it's very difficult to tell 
uh, oftentimes what is true, who is trustworthy, what voices we should be giving authority in our lives, what voices we should be, uh, you know, ignoring or pushing back against. And this isn't just a, a crisis of, of media consumption. It's not just something that happens in our head. It's also something that for many of us is, is having very real effects in our relationships with, with loved ones and, and in churches as well. So that's going to be my invitation for you to tell us a couple of stories, because that's that's how you start. And it does help us see how this is unfolding in our own lives as well. So tell us about your friend who was planning on making a move and ultimately decided not to buy a house, but a camper because he believed the fear mongering rhetoric that he was hearing and said, quote, you know, I don't want to live in the middle of a million starving people. Like, t- yeah, tell us that so, story. And then I'm going to ask you to tell us the story about discernment in your own church, because I think that sure. these are the kinds of conversations, these are the experiences we're having, and you help mm-hmm. us frame them as a part of a larger um, knowledge crisis. Yeah. So the story about the camper is, this was in the fall of 2020, and a former colleague of mine was looking to move to be closer to family, um, moving to an, a new city. And uh, I, I love, like, looking at real estate, especially fixer-uppers. Um, older houses. And so, you know, we were sort of like texting some Zillow links back and forth because I'd talked about him or talked about this move with him. And, you know, they looked at some of the houses I sent and um, he's very handy. So that's that's sort of the the vibe they were going for, something to, to fix up. Um, and as the election got closer, um, you know, he he was going to, I think, vote for, for former President Donald Trump. And as the election got closer, he started losing confidence that Trump was going to win because early on, I think he had assumed, as as many uh, Trump supporters did, that that he would be reelected. So the election's getting closer and, and my former colleague starts to think, you know, maybe he isn't going to win. Maybe Biden is going to win. And he's a big talk radio listener. Um, and... So for him, what he'd been told that would mean and what he came to believe that would mean is that if the Democrats came to power, they would very deliberately like tank the economy and supply lines would go down and there'd be no food in the stores. Um, and so he he ultimately decided not to buy a house because he didn't want to live in a city if this like economic apocalypse that he envisioned happened. And, and that was where that that very memorable quote came from that he didn't want to live in the middle of a million starving people and ended up spending a good chunk of his down payment money on a, a camper instead because he, he wanted to basically get out of out of town into you know more of a, a country setting where they could farm um, or, or garden or whatever grow food in some sort of like survivalist mode for, for when the Democrats deliberately tanked the economy and you know it's two years later now we've just had another election obviously the economy is not perfect seen better days for sure but there's food in the stores like none of this was real none of it played out certainly in the way that um, you know that city is not a million starving people right now and yet his whole life looks different than it would have uh, had he not bought into what I would say were the lies that this his chosen form of political media told him and told him because, you know, it, it gins up fear, it gins up anger, it makes you get too excited and keeps coming, keeps you coming back to listen again and again. Um, and that, as it turns out, is, is not actually like a harmless thing. And it, it did real harm, I think, in his life. We're talking with Bonnie Christian. The book is Untrustworthy. Talking about the knowledge crisis, it is fed by um, a, a media environment that is, um, that, you know, that's it's not honest and it's not trustworthy. And so that's the 
subject matter of our conversation. Bonnie, um, talk with us now about your experience of a discernment process in the midst of your local congregation, because this this gets to the question, if we can't reason together, can we worship together? Yeah, so I mean, I, I told this story because a lot of the, the things that I recommend toward the end of the book and sort of my natural inclination is to to talk a lot about community and, and like a good, robust community, life in Christian community as an antidote to a lot of this, this knowledge crisis stuff we're experiencing. And, and that is a big part of it. But what I came to realize through this process at our, our former church before we moved um, last summer was that community alone is not going to be enough. Um, and so the story was basically that our, our denomination was going to do, as many denominations have done, a vote on gay marriage and ordination, um, how that would be handled in our churches. And so, um, you know, we were a small congregation. We wanted to do our due diligence, send our representative, participate in the vote. And so because it was a small enough church in you know, some places, this would just be something like the elders did. But we were small enough that it was a, a congregation wide discernment process. And what we found out really quickly was we had all sort of assumed, I think, that we agreed with each other on these questions, and it turned out we didn't. But it wasn't just that we disagreed on what the policy would be. Like, that would have been, you know, a big enough problem to tackle. What we found was that we disagreed about how to make the decision. And so there were different ideas on this, even on the same side of the question. Um, you would ha- There were some people who were like, you know, we need to go and, and look at the relevant scriptural passages and, like, figure out what this means. And then there were some people who who wanted to talk about like, well, you know, let's let's try to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Let's think about what it would mean for me as a person to attend a church like this that that commits to one policy or another. Like, what would I tell my gay friend or what would I tell my conservative mom about, you know, if I if I attend to a church that that goes in one direction um, or the other. And and those different impulses for how to answer the question proved to be, like for me at least, almost the, the most difficult part of the conversation. Um, and so we ended up moving before the, the conversation was resolved because COVID hit and we weren't going to have this already really difficult discussion over Zoom while we were uh, in, in the lockdown times. Um, so it, that I wasn't there for the end of it. Um, but but yeah, it was, it was very difficult uh, to realize that we you know, we had really great, really strong community life. We all deliberately lived in the same neighborhoods. We saw each other all the time. We walked to each other's houses. Um, we shoveled each other's snow. And we yet we found out we we didn't agree on how to discern the truth on this big, important question. So we're going to talk about the reality that we need some new skills. In particular, we need a skill that none of us learned when we were little, like, how do we actually responsibly engage in conversation? And what does it look like to cultivate the intellectual virtues that are necessary to not only know what to say, but to say it in ways that uh, that honor Christ and one another? So we're going to continue our conversation here about the book Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting 
Christian community with author Bonnie Christian. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. I trust in Jesus, blessed Redeemer, my Lord forever. Continuing our conversation now with Bonnie Christian. She's the author of Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. Um, it could just be called everything that's wrong with the world we live in today, because that <laughs> is a, a good summary statement. You can um, connect with Bonnie at her website, well, on her Substack, bonniechristian.substack.com. Um, we're giving away copies of the book today. So if this is your wheelhouse and you want to be equipped to develop the kind of knowledge and information base that's going to enable you to engage responsibly in the conversations of the day, and you want to know how to develop the skill set that we are about to talk about um, right now and the uh, the intellectual virtues related to it, go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Bonnie, you do a great job unpacking, you know, like kind of the where we are in the media and, and culture, cultural realities of the day. You know, ultimately you arrive at at the problem that we face. And it's it's an information or intellectual problem that, you know, we're not necessarily operating with all of the right information or ability to logically think through things or see when we're being manipulated. But then we also lack the virtues, the intellectual virtues that are necessary to be the sort of people that responsibly use language in public. Can we focus in there? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a, a lot of people, you know, you, you said the book could be called Everything That's Wrong. I think a lot of people looking at such a, a big problem really are hoping for some kind of top-down solution. Like, you know, we're going to figure out just the right content moderation policies for social media, mm-hmm. and that'll mm-hmm. make everyone behave themselves, and it'll all be simpler and trustworthy and so on. And I just, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we can really, as the what? average what? individual... You mean like Elon Elon. <laughs> Elon Musk or no Elon Musk, like that does not just solve the problem? Somehow I'm, I'm doubtful. being sarcastic, um, I know. And so I think for, for most of us, maybe maybe Elon Musk is in a different position here, but for most of us, we're not going to be in a position to change this information environment. What we can change is what kind of people we are as we're coming into that space. And so that's why I really focus on the this idea of intellectual virtues. Um, and the three that I talk about are uh, studiousness, intellectual honesty and wisdom. Um, The book of Proverbs is a a really relevant read on this subject. Um, And, you know, the thing about virtues is you can't just sort of decide to have them. Um, Mm -hmm. If you could, that would be great. Um, But that's not how it works. And so getting more practical, a lot of what I what I talk about is assessing our own uh, habits are especially the way we're using our time and where we're giving our attention. And then you know, we can, we can't choose to have virtues just sort of as a one-off thing, but we can choose to change our habits and to create habits that are more conducive, that, that create a space for those virtues to develop in us. 
Yeah, Proverbs um, 17.27 is one of the passages that you point to in your conversation about studiousness. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. So I think that brings together not only the value of learning and um, and spending time um, actually gathering the right information, but then when we choose to speak into, when we choose to participate in a public conversation about something versus um, holding our tongue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so in the book, I share a, a passage from a, a writer and theologian named Dorothy Sayers, and she gives an analogy that I think is so useful. Um, she says that, you know, everyone is literate in the sense that we can read and write, but very few of our people have been taught to understand and handle language as an instrument of power. And so the analogy she gives is it's like if someone with no scientific expertise was wandering around a really dangerous scientific laboratory and just sort of, you know, pulling handles, pushing buttons, just like letting electricity all over the place, zapping stuff. In a similar way, it is dangerous to use language in public and to encounter language in public um, when you don't really understand how it can be used and how to use it humanely and responsibly. And she was writing that in the 1940s. So, of course, you have the context of like literal Nazi propaganda at the time. Um, But what's different for us, I think, is that back then... It, you, they were limited in terms of the technology and in terms of the, the number of speakers who could mm-hmm. be manipulating language and using it against people who, who don't really understand its power. Whereas now we're all in the position of both listener and speaker. And so we have the risks of being manipulated, but we also are, are assuming this responsibility to speak in public and in the process, if we're not careful, if we haven't you know, developed these virtues, maybe manipulating other people ourselves. Yeah, I mean, her list of like public speakers or people with a public voice, you know, a playwright, a politician, a preacher, a salesman. Um, And now today it's literally like everybody with a phone, anybody Mm -hmm. with a phone. And so um, how, how do I sift and sort through the sources of information, um, the claims being made, it is re- it's a dizzying array of inputs today. Yeah, and I, and I think a, a really key point that she makes is we sort of think of language as something, well, you know, we, we can all speak, so we all know how to, to talk and, and, and do language. But what she argues is that using public language specifically is a skill that you, you have to actually deliberately cultivate. And it's not a skill that everyone is taught. It's not a skill you're born knowing. It is something anyone can learn, but it doesn't just sort of happen to you. You, you have to go after that. Um, and I think for us as a society, what's happened over the last 20 years, particularly with the rise of social media, is that we, we massively increase the amount of information we encounter on a day-to-day basis. We massively increase our own opportunities to be putting out information and making truth claims in public. And we just didn't prepare for that. We didn't try to cultivate new skills for this. And it's pretty clear at this point that it's gotten us in trouble. All right. So that's what the book is about, um, actually equipping us, developing uh, the skill of using responsible and humane language in public. If you'd like to enter the drawing for the copies of Untrustworthy that we're giving away today, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, Bonnie, we've got, you know, we got about a minute left. When you, when you think about, you know, your hope for the change in the conversation of the day, is there mm-hmm. one thing that everybody listening right now, each person listening right now could do today 
to make the world different on this front? I think the the first thing that comes to mind is just notice and and be honest about it because it'll it'll probably be unflattering. Notice how much time you are spending uh, consuming, especially political media, participating in that, and compare it to how much time you're spending doing other better things. How much time are you spending at church each week versus how much time you spend on Facebook or Twitter or watching cable news? Uh, how many hours having meals with your family or friends versus, you know, time you spend reading about politics. Um, I think that's a really easy entry point to noticing if perhaps the knowledge crisis is something that has gotten into our own lives and not just, uh, you know, those dumb people on the other side of the political spectrum. <laughs> that's a great summary. Yeah, thank you. Um, Bonnie Christian, thank you so much for being here. Um, the book is just absolutely excellent, untrustworthy, the knowledge crisis, breaking our brains, polluting our politics, and corrupting Christian community. You can connect with Bonnie on her Substack, bonniechristian.substack.com. She's also on Twitter at Bonnie Christian. We are giving away copies of the book today. Text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter the drawing. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. Dan DeWitt's going to join us next. We're going to talk about uh, some things going on at the intersection of Christian worldview and the world in which we live. I want to highlight this one headline. Um, Nancy Pelosi, first female speaker of the House, announced that she would step down from leadership. She's going to remain in Congress. Um, in her speech yesterday, she um, she made lots of references to, to God, um, to a sense of calling, to the scriptures that animate um, her, her life of service. Uh, and one passage in particular, which she has turned to on prior occasions as well, as well uh, comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, talking about there being a time for everything. So it uh, led me to, to wonder and to ask, where in the word are you today? What's the verse that comes out when the world asks difficult questions or you find yourself standing in a challenging moment or a moment of transition as she finds herself now? Um, maybe a moment that in your life requires courageous action or speaking the truth in love. What's your go-to verse or passage of Scripture? I think for Nancy Pelosi, this passage from Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3 is um, is certainly one of her go-to passages of Scripture. So where in the Word are you today? Daniel uh, DeWitt is going to join us next. Theo Latte is the blog site. Um, we're going to talk about all kinds of things. I think we'll start with this. What are some of the undeniable facts about Jesus What are some of the undeniable facts about Jesus? What would make your list? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us now, Daniel DeWitt. You're going to find what we're talking about today at Theolatte.com. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. What's crackalackin'? Uh, Paul just got his first real cup of coffee yes! of the day, and it's like four hours late. So, but you know, we're Goodness. praising Jesus for the arrival of the coffee. Yeah, there's some only two hours some... late, but still, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, he's probably been unbearable. 
Well, no, no, he's been so gracious and delightful, but um, I, but you know, yeah, not uh, not himself for sure. So there you go. <clears throat> Welcome to uh, the world, Paul. Welcome yeah, to the world. Exactly. Oh, oh. and and <laughs> thanks be to God for for colleagues who are who are willing to go and um and get coffee. Right? Yeah. At hey um. So depending where you live across the country, there is a snowstorm headed your way. Uh, I'm probably at some point supposed to say that this morning, so I'm just going to say that. Um, It has nothing to do with the content of our conversation, which is going to be, what are some of the undeniable facts about Jesus? You list three. I'm guessing that we could come up with a list of more. Yeah, so there's an apologist um, who has taught for years at Liberty University who's really done an amazing job over the years um, assimilating the all of the facts that are there's really two kind of tests they look at in terms of what we're calling undeniable facts about jesus the first is that they're widely evidenced both inside and outside of scripture and the second is that they're widely accepted now we could Mm -hmm. use the term universally accepted but there's always going to be like some outlier right like somebody it's like the middle school kid who like always raises his hand to every rhetorical question you know it's like there's Mm going to be that one guy but for the most part you know these are these are facts that would be accepted by jewish scholars um, atheist scholars muslim scholars that they would recognize there's sufficient evidence for these and so habermas has given over 30 facts about jesus that are widely evidenced and then also that are um universally accepted the article that that i highlight Um, What I talk about is from a historian named Michael Icona, who has a book that is, uh, it's massive. I don't know, it's over 700 pages, I think. And it's about these historical facts. And he documents all the evidence and he documents all the scholars who accept them. And he really focuses on three. Now, when it comes to even the term facts, one of the things I point out is that you could actually, when we call it undeniable, it needs a little nuance because you could deny anything, right? So mm-hmm. of course someone can deny them. And then furthermore, the term facts is itself, um, you know, contested. What exactly is a fact? But what Lycona says is at some point when things have enough evidence and they're widely accepted by scholars, they pass into what he calls historical bedrock. And if you at this point deny the historicity of these things, because they're a part of historical bedrock, they've passed those tests. Now the burden of proof is on you to disprove them. It's no longer on the part of the person who's holding to the facts, but rather the burden of proof is on the person who denies them. I think that's helpful in so many of the conversations of the day, not just in a conversation about Jesus and whether or not someone Um, accepts him for who he is or who he claims to be or who the church recognizes him to be or who I know him to be, right? All of those things would be evidences I would bring forward in terms of the conversation. But when we Mm. talk about people who deny things that are genuinely undeniable, I think that this this apologetics methodology of, of recognizing that uh, look, the whole world actually accepts this to be true. And so if you're yeah. going to be the person who denies it, the burden of proof is on you. It's not the burden of proof is not on me to prove that I am female. Somehow the burden of proof is on you to prove that the way in which I am female is somehow not <laughs> not true. Like, right. I, I just I think that yeah. there are some conversations being that are happening in the culture today where this same methodology could be applied. So let's talk about um, uh, these these three 
undeniable facts about Jesus. And again, you guys can read this at theolatte.com. Um, do you want to walk us through them, Dan? Yeah, so the, the first is that, um, is that Jesus died by crucifixion. And that presupposes, you know, a, a several other facts, right? That Jesus existed. And I, I remember years ago doing an event um, in which we talked about on a secular campus, the historical Jesus, and we had someone write in during Q&A. They didn't, we had a few hundred university students who showed up to the event. We did Q&A, they could write in, text in, or stand at a mic. And someone wrote in the uh, comment and didn't sign it, Jesus never existed, exclamation point. And that's just not, that's not a serious claim. I mean, even Bart Ehrman, who's, you know, well-known atheist, um, who is at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, got tired of people assuming he didn't believe Jesus existed because he's an atheist. So he wrote a book about the historical Jesus. The title of the book is, Did Jesus Exist? And Bart Ehrman goes on to say, yeah, everybody believes he existed. And then he died by by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. And so that's the first fact. The second is that the disciples believed they encountered Jesus shortly after the crucifixion. Now, this historical fact is important because sometimes um, you'll have skeptics say things like belief in the resurrection is a late development that happened after the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. This is something that people came up with years later. And no, there's unanimous agreement among scholars, again, across the religious spectrum, who would say this is clearly a an early belief. And then finally, the, a few years later, the Apostle Paul believed he encountered Jesus, um, the resurrected Jesus. And so those three facts that Jesus died by crucifixion, early on, the disciples believed they saw him. And then a few years later, Paul believed he saw him. Those are undeniable facts in that they are a part of the historical bedrock. I love that. And they um, and they give us opportunities for real conversation with real people about the questions they're asking today. Um, I mean, if somebody is going to is actually going to say Jesus never existed, I'm going to look right back at them and say, you don't exist in the same way. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that's that's the kind of thing you, you, you say. Do, are you, are yeah. you serious? Yeah, you do not. If you genuinely believe that, then I genuinely believe you do not exist in the same way that yeah. you believe Jesus did not exist, because you're you're literally operating in a uh, in a in a cosmology that is so untrue, so far from the truth that, um, yeah. <clears throat> and you know, we we have to we have to be reminded that you know, people not not only do people not have to be rational, right? But if we're honest. A lot of our decisions aren't entirely rational. I mean, if we were purely rational beings, McDonald's would be out of business. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> like, true. <laughs> we would need a whole lot less fast food. And so in conversations, you have to always keep in mind that people often will reject things, not because they're intellectually convinced, but they have other kind of overriding concerns or priorities and even once you get someone to recognize something is a fact, I have a, a good atheist friend and um, walked through all the the evidence for the resurrection. And he concluded, I, it's really compelling. Like it's it's impressive, the amount of evidence he said, but because I don't believe that there's anything outside of nature, um, this would just have to be a very odd historical event for which it, upon further ex, uh, you know, inquiry, we might find some natural explanation. And so even once you get a fact, a person still has to interpret the fact. And that's one of the quotes I have in the article, that there are no, there's no such thing as ready-to-eat facts. You know, we're all going to come to the facts 
with a certain presupposition or a certain worldview or other commitments. And so keep those things in mind, but it's a great starting point for conversations about Jesus. What we believe about Jesus is not a blind leap of faith, but to quote R.C. Sproul, it's well-reasoned trust. Um, this is the minimal facts approach. That's another thing that you say um, mm-hmm. in this piece. Um, I would juxtapose that against the how thin can you slice the theological pie approach. <laughs> no, I just then think that mean? in the con- well, I just mean that in the conversations of the day, what you've yeah. posted here about the three undeniable facts about Jesus, like <laughs> this is this is some of the most basic um, mm. conversation and the level of conversation that most people in the culture. This is where we need to be engaging people in the culture, and instead, so many times. Um, People are, you know, people of good faith and and people who both you and I love deeply. They are slicing Mm. the theological pie so thin. um, They are having debates, um, you know, about literally how many angels can dance on the on the head of a pen. Yes. And and that's not helpful. Like in the world Mm. where people deny the very existence of Jesus, where they have questions about whether or not he he actually died by crucifixion under Roman rule and under a guy named Pontius Pilate and whether or not his followers really did believe they encountered him soon after his crucifixion in what we call resurrection. And that Mm -hmm. years later, the apostle, the one we call the Apostle Paul, I mean, has this life-transforming, utterly undeniable-for-him event that not only changed mm-hmm. his entire life, but um, but influenced every Christian who would ever follow. Um, I, it, it's, it's as if we have forgotten that these are the real questions that uh, we need to be engaging in our conversations. Um, maybe, maybe the debates we have among mature Christians about... Um, other theological topics are are important, but they're not this important. And so I think that uh, this is a really helpful piece and mm-hmm. gets us uh, sort of puts our feet back on the ground sometimes when we uh, when we find ourselves wanting to fly around in theological debates that people are not actually having. This is this is seeking to answer questions people are actually asking versus mm-hmm. all the times we are answering questions that people are not asking. Maybe that's the way I should have said it in the beginning. No, that's great. But I do like and pie. It, I do like pie, and it's almost Thanksgiving, <laughs> so pie on the mind. All right, we gotta take a we gotta take a very very brief break. We're talking with Dan Dewitt. You can find what we're talking about at theolatte.com. Next up, yep, mm-hmm, food and gladness. More pie. There should be pie. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of what we do on live radio every day. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Right now, we're inviting you to share your Faith Radio story. What do you love about Faith Radio? What do you love about Mornings with Carmen? How has this program changed the way you think or the way you live, the way you engage others in the conversations of the day? We really do want to hear from you. Your story could encourage someone else and certainly glorify God. So share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leave us a message today. Again, thanks for listening. Go on, get some rhubarb pie. That's what it's all about. Rhubarb pie. Oh, rhubarb pie. Let there be rhubarb pie. Praise Jesus for you. Rhubarb pie. Uh, Dan DeWitt is here with us. We are talking about the apologetics of food and gladness. You can find it at theolatte.com. 
rhubarbpie.com. Yeah, let's talk about food. I don't know that I've ever had rhubarb pie. What <gasps> is that? What exactly is that? Oh, is that like, oh my goodness. Is that like okay. pumpkin pie? Oh my goodness. Okay, so I don't I don't even know where does one begin to talk with a person who's never experienced rhubarb in any of its forms. I have a whole rhubarb cookbook. Um Is it a fruit? So is it rhubarb? Okay, it is rhubarb with which you are unfamiliar. Um yeah. Wow. Okay, uh I need some help here. Text me if you're listening right now. I know there are some of you that grow it all the time because you bring it to me. So I know I probably need Anne to weigh in now on the text line 877-933-2484 and all, sorry. okay it grows like it on a vine it grows, or a tree it's like stalks it grows like asparagus okay oh, okay um but it so, is so it like, is like reddish pie. it's like red, well there's stalks though it's just it's oh. not there's no there's no is it pumpkin. Round? there's no thing <laughs> no no it's a stalk it's a you, you oh gosh how do i paul help me out okay. how do i explain rhubarb to a person who's never experienced it i feel yeah. like the rhubarb apologist this morning okay <laughs> rhubarb oh is goodness. a um, it's a tart stock you know it, it's a stocky uh, vegetable fruit kind of thing and so it's like um, corn what's that <laughs> It's, it's like corn? No. No, oh. it's, no, I would definitely like say a, it's like a, asparagus. Definitely think asparagus, okay. but su- like but it like attacks you if you know how to put your fingers way back there at the tart spot where the sweet tart gets you. Yeah. That's yeah. where the rhubarb the, yeah, gets somebody you. Somebody said think celery. Okay. Even though yes, it's individual celery instead of good. grouped together. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then ah. it, it's tart, but you add <laughs> a lot of sugar and you get that sweet tart thing going. It's ah, yes. I've never had okay. celery pie either. No, <laughs> well, of course not. Okay, so here's the thing: if you're gonna, <laughs> if you're gonna make a rhubarb, quick. if you're going to have rhubarb pie, you're gonna need a lot of sugar and and I feel like a few strawberries. I feel like that's a good combo. Oh yeah, the oh. strawberry rhubarb combo is a really nice combo. Um, and and it makes your rhubarb rhubarb pie somewhat less expensive if you cut it with strawberries because strawberries are not nearly as Hard to come by. Um, oh, and not so, up here. You can have rhubarb. I mean, this, well, I know, but it doesn't grow south. year round. Yeah, I know. So, but you can. I have learned this. You can, you can get it in season. Cut it up into it into and pieces, it. and then freeze oh, yeah. it, yeah. and then you can use it to make your rhubarb pie. Yes. Okay. So. This I have derailed the conversation. Well, so you've badly. derailed the conversation. However, people on the text line are actually enjoying this a lot. Wow. I mean, like tons of input. Victoria says, I grow rhubarb. I can't believe there's someone who doesn't know about it. Um, and then Carol says, tell them it's like a sweet tart. Um, I mean, like really. Oh. And, and then lots of lots of people jumping in like you should have said celery. You should have said celery at the beginning. Talk about <laughs> celery with flavor. Talk about red celery. Why aren't you saying celery? All right. So apparently celery is what I should have been saying um huge my, mark says clearly carmen has not seen it it has huge leaves but it's kind of a bitter celery well i think it's a tart celery like right I like, clearly I like rhubarb needs some advocacy in places that um i just yeah <clears throat> the pumpkin has had a lot of advocacy and clearly rhubarb yeah. has not had enough advocacy um dan where Rube. do you where do you geographically live now do you still live in ohio we live in Ohio, you, and then I, I fly to you, Missouri once a month. Okay, so here's the question. Are you going to be in um, in Cedarville or thereabouts on the weekend of, like, December 16, 17? Yes. Okay. We are here I'm for gonna, Christmas. 
Because I'm going to be at a wedding in Xenia, which I think is super close to you. I will bring you a rhubarb pie. Hey, we would love to have you over for dinner, Carmen. That would I'm going to bring the pie. I'm totally okay. bringing the pie. We will now serve we you have, the meal. You bring the dessert. Now we have like one minute to talk about. Although I think we've been doing it, right? <laughs> but just right. give us give us the one minute on the apologetic <laughs> of food and gladness at theolatte.com. Well, in the end of The Hobbit, King Thorin, who has been greedy and mean, is dying and says, um, if more of us, to Bilbo, he says, if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. And so we're all getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, G.K. Chesterton once said, a saint is one who exaggerates what the world neglects. And so as you go into Thanksgiving, do so with a thankful heart and exaggerate the neglected goodness of God and know the Apostle Paul used all of this as an argument for God's existence in Acts 14. So he was preaching to a group that thought he was a God himself, that thought he was divine. And he said, look, don't worship me. Worship God who gave the seasons. He gave the rain. He gave the harvest. And he gave feasting and gladness. And this is his apologetic for God's existence. And I pray that you could use this apologetic, even as you sit around the Thanksgiving table eating rhubarb pie. Mm, because you will be so blessed if you have a rhubarb <laughs> pie at your Thanksgiving meal. All right, we're going to give God all of our thanks and gratitude, and we are going to celebrate that Christ is made known among us in the breaking of the bread. Dan, um, as always, thank you so much for joining us. What a delight. And, um, and may there be rhubarb pie in your future. Well, there will be, because I'm going to promise it. That's awesome. Thanks, Carmen. It's so great. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thank you for all of your texts this morning about rhubarb. Remember, you can text me, 877-933-2484. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. But the fire is so delightful. All right, apparently, um, yeah, a lot of you very concerned on the text line about about poor Dan and the fact that he's never experienced rhubarb. So thank you for your generosity and um, and, and all of your concern today for him. You know, it's, a, it's an item of prayer. Um, all right, snow, big, big, big snow is uh, is headed for the upper Midwest, particularly the eastern portions of the United States of America. A state of emergency has been declared. Um, commercial traffic actually has already stopped in uh, in New York State on the I-90. Um, it's going to be the most intense snow um, in Buffalo, New York, like possibly in history. I mean, it's definitely a historic storm bearing down on western New York State, but it won't, you know, it won't just stay right there. Uh, for those of you across the upper Midwest, including the Twin Cities, you already know this, but temperatures are 20 degrees below normal. That would be true where I am as well. I don't expect to get snow where I am this weekend, but four feet or more of snow in Buffalo is a lot of snow. So what do you do when it snows? Like, what are your, like, go-to snow activities? Let me know. 877-933-2484. we got another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.